0: um welcome. welcome to sojourner truth thank you for being here with us i'm your guest host this hour nana jumpy filling in by invitation for my sister and comrade the host of sojourner truth margaret prescott we live in a global world we are all interrelated so on sojourner truth we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all, and we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines.
1: For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina honested The German government has confirmed it will provide Ukraine with 14 Leopard 2 battle tanks and approve requests by other countries to do the same. The government said the goal is for Germany and its allies to provide Ukraine with a total of two battalions, or 88 tanks. The long-awaited decision came after U.S. officials say the U.S. would send M1 Abrams tanks to help Ukraine troops
2: push back Russian forces in the country's east. Eileen Alfandari reports. Ukrainian leaders have been urgently requesting tanks. Connecticut Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal was part of a bipartisan delegation that recently went to Ukraine.
3: The Leopard 2 tanks are important because they are there. They're in Europe, thousands of them.
2: Ukraine's defense minister wants 300 Leopard tanks. Some European Union leaders support him on that. A research analyst at the International Institute for Strategic Studies said the leopard tanks could allow Ukraine to go on the offensive in the 11-month-old conflict, but that maximalist view is not shared by General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
3: This year,
4: it would be very, very difficult to militarily eject the Russian forces.
2: Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the peace group Code Pink, said in a recent interview with Lee Camp of Mint Press News that there will be no victory on the battlefield. Here we are in the midst of this unwinnable war. Uh, You wonder why people in what people in the Biden administration are doing and thinking if they are not listening to people like Mark Milley himself. I'm
1: Eileen Alfonderry for Pacifica Radio. Germany has more than 500 Leopard 2 tanks in its stockpile. Turkey, which is unlikely to send any to Ukraine, has more than 300. Spain also has more than 300. Poland and Greece each have about 250 Leopard 2 tanks. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists say the world is closer to Armageddon than it has ever been. The science-based advocacy group moved its famous doomsday clock to just 90 seconds before midnight Tuesday. That's 10 seconds closer to striking 12 than last year. Bulletin President Rachel Bronson said the war in Ukraine and Russia's thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons raised a terrible risk and urged negotiations to end the conflict. The U.S.
2: government, its NATO allies and Ukraine have multitude of channels for dialogue we urge leaders to explore all of them to their fullest ability with this in mind we are releasing today's statement in english russian and ukrainian it is the first time we have done this and we hope it garners the attention it deserves in the capitals most affected
1: Scientists say other existential threats include nuclear weapon increases in China, uranium enrichment in Iran, missile tests in North Korea, bio-threats such as pandemic or lab accidents, and worsening climate change. In the past few years, the group has changed from counting down the minutes counting down the seconds to midnight. California's governor, the White House, and an array of other officials are renewing calls for gun reform legislation after a series of mass shootings across California. Saturday night, 11 people were shot dead at a dance hall in Monterey Park near Los Angeles. Monday night, four were injured, one killed at a shooting in Oakland, and later seven were killed, one critically injured in Half Moon Bay. Christopher Martinez reports. We have mourned lives lost in mass shootings after mass shootings.
5: Care- Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary, says over the past two decades, more school-aged children have died from gun violence than police and active military combined, and she says we know what the policy solutions are. California Senator Dianne Feinstein and Connecticut Senators Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy, all Democrats, introduced a bill to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines.
1: The President and the First Lady are thinking of those killed and injured in these latest shootings across America, but more importantly, he's urging both chambers of Congress to act quickly and deliver this assault, bans, uh, assault weapons ban. To his desk and take additional action to keep American community schools, workplace, and homes safe.
5: Since the start of the new year, there have been about seventy deaths in thirty-nine mass shootings, according to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive. And a staggering twelve hundred gun violence deaths so far. I'm Christopher Martinez.
1: California Governor Gavin Newsom visited Half Moon Bay in the wake of the mass shooting there one day after visiting survivors of the Monterey Park massacre. He said California has led the nation on gun violence policies like background checks and waiting periods for gun purchases, and it has lowered gun deaths. But California cannot do it alone and criticized Republican lawmakers who have opposed gun control measures, taking aim at Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of California.
3: We haven't heard one damn word from him not since Monterey Park not what happened here not one word not one expression of prayers condolences nothing and it surprised nobody where's he been on gun safety reform where's the republican party been on gun safety reform they blocked it every step of the way.
1: California Governor Gavin Newsom. Documents with classified markings were discovered in former Vice President Republican Mike Pence's Indiana home last week. According to his attorney Greg Jacob, the documents had been inadvertently boxed and transported to Pence's home at the end of the last administration. It complicates the Republican attack on President Joe Biden, whose attorney said they found a small number of classified documents at an office and his home. It appears both Biden and Pence notified a Authorities as soon as the documents were found. In contrast, former Republican President Donald Trump rejected several requests to return classified documents to the National Archives. He had hundreds of pages of them. I'm Christina Honestad reporting for Pacifica Radio.
0: And that were the news headlines from Pacifica Radio. This is Nana Jumphy, today's guest host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to be discussing today, Top City we're going to be discussing asylum seekers in New York City. We're going to be discussing the two-year anniversary of the Biden-Harris administration. But we first begin with the discussion of asylum seekers in New York City. And I'm so pleased to be joined by my friend and comrade, Carl Hamad Lipscomb. Carl Hamad Lipscomb is a veteran policy strategist, movement builder, a writer, and advocate for immigrant rights, criminal justice reform, and racial equity. He currently serves as the executive director of Envision Freedom Fund, an organization committed to dismantling and transforming the immigration and criminal legal systems in New York City. New York City Mayor Eric One-Term Adams has made it clear from press conferences from New York City to Texas and back that he doesn't want any more asylum seekers coming to the city. The city has seen 36,000 asylum seekers arrive as of January 4th of this year, but keeping asylum seekers out of New York is not a real solution. Thank you so very much for joining me, Carl. Thank you so much for having me, Nana. So what is poor one-term Adams going to do? So what is his suggestion for how we resolve this problem, quote unquote, of asylum seekers coming into New York City?
6: Yeah, you know, his ideas have been very disappointing thus far as, you know, he was elected largely by Black New Yorkers. And as Black New Yorkers, we listen to him on the news and, you know, we agree with him and then he'll say something that's off and it's like, no, 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 we can't do that. And so in this instance, he's relying almost solely on the federal government and the state government, but he's looking for them to bail us out, which is right. They should definitely be offering more funding for resources for asylum seekers and for immigrants overall for all immigrants but he's also ignoring new york's burden our social infrastructure um has been failing for way too long it affects both the asylum seekers but also the black new yorkers that have lived in new york for a while and we all live side by side and so everyone is struggling when there isn't access to housing when there isn't access to jobs. And so thus far, his response has been disappointing in that it's just sort of, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see if Biden moves or if HOKO moves, while also housing recent migrants in places that are just incredibly inconvenient, that aren't necessarily culturally competent, setting up tent cities on what's really a remote beach. There's It's 45 minutes away from the nearest subway station. And he's done that, you know, three times already and the city not being as responsive as it could be.
0: There have been some recent articles that have talked specifically about what is happening with Black asylum seekers. Um, As usual, often Black migrants are invisibilized in these conversations. But we've had the plights and the challenges that Black migrants are facing be surfaced. What Mm -hmm. are those challenges? How is it different um, than what is happening with other migrants, um, other asylum seekers that have come into not just New York City, but cities all over this country? Yeah. And,
6: you know, I know we're not necessarily talking about what's happening at the border here, but Black migrants approach the border along with all other migrants seeking to enter the U.S. because they have family here, because they're escaping violence and poverty that's often caused by the U.S. But what they're met with at the border is racism, it's xenophobia, Not at the hands of ICE, definitely, but also at the hands of a lot of organizations that work with the border. And so the organizations that help facilitate individuals getting on buses to go to New York and to go elsewhere aren't necessarily providing those services for Black immigrants. And so Black immigrants being turned away are getting to other parts of the country via airplane and via other means. Um, They're being paroled into the U.S., but they're not being bused from Texas or Florida. And so they're still they're arriving um, in heavy numbers, um, especially here in New York, and Black immigrants. Um, you know the this um, the city services have been set up specifically for individuals arriving by bus, and so Black migrants, if they're not on the bus, and most of them are not on the buses, are not eligible for those services. Everyone's calling them asylum seekers. I call them just recently arrived migrants because. Not everyone is an asylum seeker per se. Black migrants are not eligible for those services. And so our folks have had to rely, as we've done for hundreds of years, on our own communities and on our own what they would call informal networks to survive our own mutual aid networks. I think what you might have read about a few weeks ago is a brother up in the Bronx that houses anywhere from 30 to 40 African migrants that are arriving by plane at the same time that the asylum seekers are coming by bus. And he's housing them. He's making sure they have food and clothes and whatnot. Um, He's trying to get them services because they're ineligible for what the city is providing at this time. So that's just, you know, that's one of many, many ways that Black migrants are being um, uh, treated differently.
0: We have similar situation happening here in Los Angeles where you have individual Black migrants that live in the Los Angeles area that are literally checking in with, their church members with members of mosques and trying to see how they can help recently arrived migrants uh, be able to have a place to stay and to have food to eat. Um, I think there is this illusion, a myth that people have that when people come into this country, as recently um, arrived migrants, that they have all these resources, mysteriously. People just give them money and the government gives them, you know, the capacity for business licenses and
6: all of these pieces. Can you address that a little bit? Yeah, and I mean, I think that to a certain extent, and, you know, some of your listeners might disagree with me, I partially blame our own immigrant rights movement for that because for many years, We touted this good versus bad immigrant narrative, and we framed immigration as being about becoming the high school valedictorian and starting a business and having this flourishing career and becoming wealthy in the U.S. And so the government, of course, that's what we're asking for. That's how they are going to design their policies and design their narrative. They're going to design it around the quote unquote good immigrants. And so I think that that's you know that's largely been the problem the big thing here is that just like in every other part of our society black people are not benefiting from this false american dream black immigrants aren't the ones that are benefiting from the business loans and black immigrants aren't the ones that are living behind the white picket fences this narrative hurts black migrants but even more importantly the policies that are designed in response to this narrative Have really hurt Black migrants. You talked
0: earlier about the fact that for, you know, recently arrived Black migrants, and the Black migrants that have come earlier, that we go to Black neighborhoods. You know, that's the place where we're going to gravitate. And of course, Black neighborhoods already have resources that are stretched. And so part of the narrative that we hear from President Biden, who talked about the human rights, of asylum versus so-called fundamental rights of Americans, using his term, which apparently include a job. You know, I'm like, hey, we should be able to work with that if that's the truth. But anyway, and then you heard Mayor one term Adams doing the same thing, you know, kind of pushing this idea that there's this competition that's happening And when they control the resources and make the resources scarce, as you pointed out, it can feel like that. So how do we address this issue of getting resources such that recently arrived migrants, particularly Black migrants, um, and does not become this wedge issue with Black folks that are already in these communities who are already struggling to try to get work, to get housing, to get uh, you know assistance in terms of food, etc. Especially in light of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that
6: one way that we begin to address it is to not necessarily talk about this as a very unique, isolated emergency that's taking place right now, because that implies. That there's a quick fix that will end the emergency when the real problem, as you mentioned, is that we don't have access to housing, that we don't have access to social services, that we don't have access to jobs and the resources that our communities need. And so what we can start doing is talking about those things, because those are the things that everyone needs universally. The problem isn't that there isn't enough shelter for asylum seekers. The problem is that there isn't shelter for anyone that we're all affected by it. The problem isn't that there aren't jobs for Black migrants. The problem is that there aren't jobs for Black people. And we are all economically struggling together. And I think that we begin to talk about it. And I know that it's um talking about these issues. I don't want to introduce the idea of intersectionality here, but talking about these issues in a way that connects them is often hard. But I think it's important. And I think that's what will resonate with, with folks, you know, everyday folks on the ground, they know that they're economically struggling. And so to tell them, yes, all the problem is that everyone is struggling and those are the solutions we need. We need the federal government to commit to more funding for housing for everyone. We need the state government to do the same. We need Eric Adams to stop talking about, you know, the asylum seekers and versus Black people, versus other communities, versus... Americans and so forth, and recognize that, one, you know, when he cuts shelters, it affects everyone. And and he knows this. And so I think this is what we have to start doing. We have to start talking about these, people like to call them deeper social issues. They're not that deep. We need money for housing. When you give the money, (laughs) it'll be resolved. What's deep about that? (laughs) <laughs> right. It's not that deep. It's pretty clear.
0: And, uh, you know, people talked about I'm thinking about the early years of the pandemic, because the pandemic is not over, when people talked about how we, they suddenly understood, they got it. It was clear, you know, that um, all of these inequities had been surfaced. And it seems like uh, already all the inequities are getting buried. And as you said, being treated as if you've got to go deep, deep, deep. Um, to hit upon them, I know last week you participated in a press conference with the New York City Public Advocate, um, Jemani Williams, and other movement organizations, including Baji and the Gambian Youth Organization, to lift up concerns about Mayor Adams' position. What message do you hope people heard? I know you've talked uh, about some of it, but what message do you hope people heard and got from your words, um, the words of your comrades and partners uh, and of the public advocate?
6: Yeah, I think, I hope they got the message that talking about a site like an asylum seeker, um, you know, a, a migrant, crisis, specifically in New York, um, and as an emergency, is really a distraction from the fact that there are plans to cut funding for vital social services um, that are used by Black Americans, by immigrants, by everyone in New York. And it's easy to say that, oh, well, you know, there isn't enough. It's easy to make it sound as though we don't have enough resources because of these quote unquote new people coming to the city. But the truth is, we don't have the resources because, because you're not giving them to us. You're not allocating the funding. And so I hope that what people got was that the recently arrived migrants, asylum seekers, are not the blame. They're not to be scapegoated for the lack of resources. It's our policymakers and our mayor's
0: office. Absolutely. Can't keep giving money to NYPD and closing down everything and getting shot that the resources are not available How do people connect with you and the work of Envision Freedom Fund if they want
6: to learn more? Sure, there are a few ways. You can definitely visit our website, envisionfreedom.org. We have a podcast that you can find on multiple platforms. Um, It's called Dismantling Injustice, and it's on Spotify, Apple, and so forth. Um, And you can just follow us on Twitter. Just search Envision Freedom Fund, and we will pop up.
0: Thank you so very much, Carl. I really appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too, Nana. We'll be back after this station break with our next segment with Kamal Franklin talking about Cop City and what is happening in Atlanta. See you on the other side. Mm
5: This is Brother Fella Ransom Kuti. This is one time I would like to say a few things. Men are born, kings are made, treaties are signed, wars are fought. Every country has its own problems. So has Nigeria. So has Africa. Let us bind our wounds and live together in peace, Nigeria, one nation indivisible, long live Nigeria, viva Africa.
0: Viva Africa, viva Africa. We are back. This is not a jumpy guest hosting for Margaret Prescott on Sojourner Truth. On Wednesday, January 18th, Atlanta police shot and killed Atlanta forest defender and activist, Manuel Tortuguita Terran. Atlanta police, including a SWAT team, were violently evicting protesters who had occupied a wooded area outside a proposed $90 million training facility known as Cop City, inside Welanu Forest, a public forest in Georgia pleased to be joined by Kamal Franklin to talk more about this terrible, terrible tragedy. Kamal Franklin is the founder of Community Movement Builders, a grassroots organization dedicated to creating sustainable Black communities through organizing and cooperative development. Kamal has been a dedicated community organizer for over 30 years, first in New York City and now based in the South. He is also an attorney and has worked on various issues, including youth organizing, police violence, community cop watch programs, freedom school programs for youth, electoral and policy campaigns, and alternatives to incarceration programs. Greetings, Kamal. Thank you so very much for joining
3: us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So I gave the briefest of descriptions because I'm trying to make sure we hear more from you than we hear from me. Can you share with our listeners what is Cop City and what was this protest that was happening in the woods?
3: Cop City is a proposal from the Atlanta Police Foundation, the Atlanta city government itself, obviously the Atlanta police, to create a militarized training facility and or base Right next to and or in the middle of a working class Black community, a community that's over 70% Black in Southeast Atlanta. At this militarized training center, there will be over a dozen firing ranges or shooting ranges. There will be places to detonate explosives. There's going to be a landing strip for Black Hawk helicopter pad. There's going to be trainings on crowd control with two mock cities. There's going to be bars, restaurants. And the list goes on and on they're going to be training police from around the country at this site and they also have an ongoing training program with the israeli police department or israeli police who are going to frequently come here and they're going to exchange information to use the same type of tactics that they use here in the black community on palestinians and vice versa so this monstrosity came after the 2020 uprisings all across the country After the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor here in Atlanta, Rashad Brooks, where at the time the dialogue and discussion was around defunding the police, abolishing the police, finding alternatives to public safety. As opposed to listening to that outcry, the police and the police agencies around it and fans of the police, and this is their words, not ours, decided to lift the morale of the police by proposing this cop city. When again, no one has asked for it. It's funded ninety million dollars, funded by sixty million of it private corporations, thirty million dollars of it in the city. And then lastly, I'll say this top city idea is being done in the middle of a working class black community in you know the Walani Forest, which is a forest that is right next to that community, which was promised to that community to be a place for parks walking trails, continued ecological use. And so during a time of climate change, they plan to cut down over 100 acres of that forest to make way for this cop city facility.
0: I mean, as you point out, come out, really, it's an abomination, given all of the work that the people have done pushing back against the increase of policing, but also given all the lies that Atlanta have been telling about what it's doing. And I think about ACDC and how it's supposed to be shut down and converted into a community space, how Atlanta is walking back from that. Now we hear about what's happening with Cop City. And so clearly people have been responding to it all. Um, there was the occupation of the forest that Tortuguita was a part of, a queer, gender non binary, Afro Venezuelan migrant. And I want to make sure to point all of that out because I think it's important as we talk about the kind of unity, not just of causes, but also of folks that have been pushing against this cop city. And as his mother points out, killed in cold blood. Of course, the police have their own version that we won't even waste our time talking about. What is our understanding from community about what happened there?
3: Yeah. So two quick things that you'd ask me, who are the forest defenders? And so I'll do that and then quickly go over what happened to Tortugita. So the forest defenders, so out of the organizing that came to fight back against Cop City, part of that organizing... Um, has been to have people basically take up residence and involve themselves in civil disobedience, direct action tactics to stop the forest from taking place. We should mention that before this resolution was passed, surveys had been done where over 70% of Atlant- Atlantans were opposed to development and creation of Cop City. In fact, on the night of the actual vote by the city council, Well over 70% of the people who called in said they were opposed to it. Over 90% of the residents who live in the surrounding communities have also said that they are opposed to the building of Cop City. So this is something that doesn't have the consent of the residents and the electorate in Atlanta. This is something that's purely being pushed through by the police and the city officials and we should mention the black city officials who are leading the way and pushing this through so the forest defenders took up space after the vote from city council to have this resolution passed to do exactly what we said civil disobedience and direct action the police and their agencies have stepped up their tactics in trying to remove these forest defenders as folks know in december the first set of the forest offenders were charged with domestic terrorism All of the forest offenders arrested at that time and arrested since that were engaged in doing nothing but sitting in trees, sitting in campsites. They were engaged in no other activities but those activities. And after the first forest offenders were arrested for domestic terrorism, the police continued to step up their raids. And obviously, they're stepping up their raids because. They keep thinking this movement is going to die. And as opposed to dying, this movement continues to grow. And so last week during this time period, I think last week yesterday, the police conducted another raid. And again, information on this is scant because, as you stated, the only version we have is the police version. We have no other version because of the agencies, the police agencies which conducted this raid, they SWAT team the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the DeKalb County Police Department, the Atlanta Police Department. There's some news reports that it even involved the FBI that somehow no body camera footage was recorded from this incident whatsoever. Atlanta police in particular are required to wear and or have on their body cameras when they engage the public. And so the fact that there is somehow no body camera image whatsoever of this incident One is the first thing that gives us alarm, the knowing that the facts that they have laid out are not true at all. Allegedly, this person shot at the police and they shot back. Toto was in a campsite, which was, let's be clear, was not actually in the area where Cop City is going to be built or where an adjacent movie studio was being built. He was actually still in an area that is very much a public park area apparently surrounded by these these uh, throngs of police. And their version of it is that in a canvas tent, he would fire one single bullet at them and then they returned fire to kill him. Community members who have reported back to us have stated they heard many shots at one time, not one shot and then a short break and then an exchange of fire of some kind, but they heard a plethora of shots all at once. The fact that they said that they could not find this gun for a few days also gives us cause for concern. We don't know how many times this young person was hit. We don't know what angles this person was hit. So there's nothing in the story of the police. And as we know, as you've talked about before also, the first stories by the police are usually the first lie in their narrative to tell the version of events that they want out to the public. Uh, we had that. Yeah, we had that when it came to George Floyd. We've had that in many other incidents. Um, and so we are calling for a completely independent investigation into this issue to find out what really happened in that forest.
0: Come out, thank you so much for that, because I think for those of us that are not in Georgia in particular, and given that it seems that the electeds, particularly black electeds, they're not even mentioning it. Like I'm scouring people's social media. All you know from Senator Warnock all the way down and really not seeing anything mentioned or very little mentioned um other than being mad about broken windows and police cars police car getting burned. we only got a minute left, so I want to make sure to make it good um can you please share with us what are the demands that are being made at this time and where do people go if they want to support? for example, those that are being prosecuted under domestic terrorism or support those who are continuing to fight Cop City?
3: So the first demand, of course, is for them to not build Cop City. We st- That's our chief and full demand of what should happen. Second demand, as we mentioned earlier, is an independent investigation into this matter. We don't trust federal, state, or local authorities to investigate themselves and basically the murder of this young activist. Our third demand is that all the charges be dropped against uh, the the uh, um, forest offenders and against the organizers who were marching uh, in the streets a few days ago, that the domestic terrorism charges in particular are charges which are meant to be scare tactics used against organizers and activists. There are charges that are meant to criminalize organizers and activists, and our demand is to have those charges dropped. If folks are interested in supporting the Stop Cop City movement, they can go to a few places, The first and most important is the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. Um, There is where we're taking and collecting donations to help support in terms of jail support and bail support, and also supporting those young folks and getting attorneys. They can support community movement builders and other on-the-ground organizations that are holding rallies and demonstrations and town halls and everything else that we can think of to have this cop city stopped.
0: Thank you so very much. Really appreciate you. We got to bring you back to, you know, keep us abreast. We can't uh, be far away. You know what I mean? We got to be on this. So really appreciate you. Thank you, Kamal Franklin. Have a wonderful rest of your day.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you.
0: If you've missed any part of this hour from this morning all the way up to 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives and click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to listen to our show in its entirety. If you're on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give us a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there. Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. On Twitter and Instagram, follow our handle at so True Radio. We are so pleased now to be joined by two folks that are on the front lines, fighting for our people on the national and dare I say, on the global level. Very, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Amara Enya and Montague Simmons. The Biden administration is approaching its halfway mark this month in our final segment of this show. We are joined by my two comrades who are going to share their insight regarding a review of the Biden administration in relation to Black America. Dr. Amara Enya is the Manager of Policy and Research for the Movement for Black Lives, and Montague Simmons is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Movement for Black Lives. Thanks to both of you for coming on the show.
4: Thank you. Morning,
5: Nana. Good morning. Thank you so much. So, you know, I, I talk a lot
0: about how Black folks put this administration into power. South Carolina was critical. Before South Carolina, Biden was dead in the water. Um, mm-hmm. South Carolina is where he's able to make his push. And then they made everyone go, you know, step back. Black folks risk COVID, attacked by white supremacists, mm-hmm. really pushed the issue. You know, I don't even know, 90 percent of us or something voting um, for the Democrats. Uh, we were described by Biden himself as those who brung him to the dance. I'm using his terms. Um, two years in, looking at the issues that were most critical to black people, voting rights, uh, freedom from racial violence. This mm. goes on and on. Where is the Biden administration? What, what can we say um, about where we are two years in to this administration's turn?
4: Tomorrow, are you okay if I start and then hand over?
5: Yeah, sure, go ahead.
4: Okay, Um, good morning. Yeah, again, Montega Simmons, I lead strategic partnerships for the Movement for Black Lives. Um, Yeah, I mean, to your point, like what what you named earlier and specifically for your audience, uh, we gotta remember when we talking about black folks that we're not talking about a monolithic uh, conversation about who we are. There was a lot of segments of the black community who really were excited about Joe Biden, uh, both as Obama's VP, as Uncle Joe, working class hero. Uh, He was going to fight back the darkness that was represented by Trump. But for us in movement, and a lot of folks across the Black movement, uh, we actually said, wait a minute, 94 Crime Bill Joe? (laughs) <laughs> Clarence thomas champion, joke, um, I mean. It ain't so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there's always been a contradiction around who he is and specifically how he showed up or did not show up for us. Um, but movement, as you named, literally got in formation and despite him like not being our candidate, we educated, activated, mobilized people to the streets. We faced off of violence literally looming in our voting places, in our communities and continue to stand up and show up. And like, I'll say most salient for me in terms of like this specific moment coming out of 2022, the year with a record high number of police killings also showed a record high number of police funding. Um, And Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. in terms of like all the issues he was fighting around, uh, democracy and voting literally got pushed to the bottom of the list. and that is not to name that the threat has been abated, but it's also just naming the real contradiction in terms of who this person is and who he always has been uh, and for our community to look at this with very clear eyes around like who is normally being sacrificed, whose issues are literally being sublimated uh, in order for him to be able to walk out of success. Um, I, I'll stop there and hand it to Mar.
5: Montega, I think you hit the nail on the head, especially with regard to our need uh, to be to have clear eyes and uh, to really understand what it is that we're facing, what it is that we're up against. Uh, Many of the dynamics in the last election uh, centered on the need to remove uh, President Trump and that Biden was the only alternative Uh, which is always a dangerous, um, it's always a dangerous framing of the situation because what it meant is, yes, he was certainly not the, you know, the, he didn't come out of movement. He certainly didn't come out of, you know, our, our organizing efforts until and except for the work to really get out the vote because of what the alternative presented. But as Montega said, he's always been pretty clear about who he was. I mean, there was this notion that not much will really change. He wasn't coming in to be radically different. He was coming in at a time when the the bar was so low as to be pretty much everyone except the alternative. And that's just not um, it's it's not a strategy that is going to lead to the kinds of change, fundamental changes that we know have to happen. And so what that's meant for us over the last couple of years is we've had to be, we've had to really keep the pressure on, uh, as Montega said, looking at the amount of police funding over the last couple of years, looking at how uh, policing, even now in election cycles, whether in the midterms, and now there are a lot of municipals happening, this issue of you know, police being the solution to public safety is constantly being pushed. Um, we've seen legislation, even at the at the federal level, that didn't truly reflect what we knew need to happen in terms of transformative change. But this notion of, well, you know, this is what we can get, right? This is the best we can do, or we have to understand what's happening in the Senate and what's happening in the house. Um, And so that is very disappointing. and, And it really is actually a challenge because when it comes time for elections, again, galvanizing people, around this sort of milk toast agenda is incredibly hard. And that's when it always comes down to Black folks going out, doing the organizing to get out the vote. But there has to be something to, to rally people around and to galvanize them. And incrementalism and milk toast, this is the best we can get or things will fundamentally stay the same. Is just not an effective mechanism to galvanizing people to come out uh, during the election and even after the election.
0: We're not going to galvanize around Juneteenth. We got Juneteenth, y'all. Okay,
5: um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, wanting to think um, and to talk about what I see as this real reliance. When you're talking, um, Amara, about you know, relying on organizations, relying on movement, and I see that as what this administration has done. It has literally taken the responsibilities of government in pressing these issues and pass those responsibilities on to our organizations. You want voting rights? Okay, black organizations that are working on voting rights, you do the push for it. We're not gonna send the DOJ to sue the you know snot out of all of these different um, states and municipalities. We're gonna make you do that. You want my immigration rights for black people? No problem. We gonna have you organizations go ahead and do that. We'll fight you every step of the way, but you go for that. Um, Reproductive rights, where Sister Song and these other organizations, the Black Women for Wellness in Los Angeles, we're going to make you jump in and do it, but we're not going to take responsibility. How do we build power in that um, space, Manteca? How do we, when we're really being used on the one hand and on the other hand, this is work we've been doing before they came along. And this is work we're going to do until we win. How do we balance that or or maneuver in that scenario?
4: I think you're right to name it for what it is. It's a failure not only of government, but a failure of leadership um, when they're literally not taking responsibility for what they can do in terms of wielding power. Uh, from our end, we've always actually hoped, put our hope not in power in their offices, but in power of the people. Uh, organizing and our people are literally our only salvation. Um, like, I think we're going to do what we do as organizers. We're going to continue to address the needs. The challenge for us is to continue to make sure that we're working together. Uh, like, I do want to name, like, the only thing I think um, that, that that we didn't cover as deeply as we should is that part of what we've seen him do is also, like, push us in a wedge. Like, some folks are getting not only attention but resources um, where other segments of the movement are not. Like, even though courts are pushing back on uh rolling back the 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 student debt he's finding ways to still cancel student loans in order to abate uh folks that have been adding significant pressure same thing on climate um and even though like right now like everyone's under pressure around reproductive justice they're opening doors in ways that they're not on other discussions so it's important on our end as folks that are actually deeply embedded in the movement to stay in contact with in conversation with each other our strategies have to lean on each other because we're we have to activate our communities together. Um, and again, I don't think our salvation is in D.C. Our salvation's on the block and uh, making sure that we're actually still in clear and open conversation with folks so they know what their own power is, not only when it comes to November 2024, but day in, day out in terms of the choices they're making and where we're actually investing our energies
0: yeah absolutely and thinking about the ways in which people working together are keeping these fires lit in spite of all of the pushback particularly as we talk about issues relating to policing um relating to abolition amara you you raised this as um something that is clearly back on, you know on the block i think they just had a press co- not a press conference but a press piece with um Mayor uh, Eric One-Term Adams, got to keep that nickname in there and make it so, Um, Mayor Bass uh, here in Los Angeles. And I believe it was either Lightfoot or another Black mayor. Um, And one of their theme songs they all share, they may have had differences, but one of their theme songs for sure was, we don't want to hear no more about defund the police and policing is the way and public safety is the way. And I think some people are feeling a little defeated about that orgs in the Movement for Black Lives ecosystem are still pushing. Share some um, hope for us, please, Amara, on what people are doing to continue pushing on that issue.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of work happening. And and I think the other mayor was uh, Sylvester Turner from Houston. Uh, Lori, Lori hopefully one term lightfoot certainly uh, wasn't in that group. But you know, we we are doing our best uh, over in this neck of the woods to to make sure that it is one term. Um, what you're seeing is in a lot of the largest cities, which do happen to be led by Black people, you've seen that increase in investment in policing. I know in Chicago we raised we increased the budget for policing. It's now about two billion dollars uh, a year. Um, while failing to address the issues that actually impact uh, public safety, the kinds of investments in our communities. And so the conversations that are being had and the work that organizations are doing on ground is talking to people in our neighborhoods about what safety actually means and what we are entitled to, which is not just police and police infrastructure, which seems to be the only investments that our communities receive, but it is actually housing. It is in, our ability to open up our own businesses. It's in financial investment in our neighborhoods. It's investing in our schools. And when you have those conversations with the people who live in the neighborhood, you begin to unpack what they mean when they want safety. And it's it never boils down to just police. Uh, so our organization's um throughout the country are doing that work. They're having those conversations. There are a number of initiatives around uh, looking into city budgets and really looking under the hood to understand how the money is actually being allocated. And there's been a lot of great work that's happening exposing how resources that should be going into co- into our communities are not going into our communities and pushes, campaigns around, reallocating funding. There have also been an ongoing many organizations across the country that have looked into the federal dollars that came through ARPA, um, uh, the ARPA funds, which in some instances initially, a lot of mayors were just using those federal dollars that was supposed to help people during COVID and putting them into policing. Well, there are many organizations that have exposed the process, that have demanded transparency, and that are putting input into how those federal dollars are allocated in their neighborhoods. So in spite of the challenges, this kind of work is forcing governments, particularly at the local level, municipal level, to be transparent, and it is forcing conversations around reallocation that actually reflect what our communities say when they say safety, or when they're looking at investment and what it takes to build strong, uh, safe communities. And so
0: thinking about the work that's happening in our communities, but also um, the conversation about cross-movement work um, that also seems to be coming up a lot. What are some of the strategies or thinkings that we have as we look forward over the next couple of years in terms of what that cross-movement strategic partnerships, what they need to look like?
4: Yeah, the way I'm thinking about it, especially for 2023 and 24, like a lot of our work, as you named, is not just electoral, but based on what Amara just said out, like a lot of it needs to be deep rooted conversations in our community, um, meaning not just the door to door organizing, but deep popular education conversations. Like people are afraid. We, we can't deny that. People are not only afraid, people are hungry. People are displaced because of shrinking housing stock. Uh, people are afraid because of the increased cost of food. And there are roots we can actually talk people through how we got to this moment and make it clear before the, before the elections literally take over our airwaves, uh, where and how these crises develop. And I think the challenge for us has always been to make sure that conversations around our own demand don't get sublimated for other things. Um, part that's part of the importance of making sure that we're working in cross movement spaces so that we're actually building deep value alignment, like it's important for us to live in communities that, that do have climate justice, that do have economic justice and have uh, not only living wages, but the ability for folks to be able to thrive. And that means access to not only health care, but reproductive justice. Um, those things are connected. And if we're bringing and talking about like what it is to live a full life, a whole life, and bring our whole self to these spaces. We have to build and hold these conversations with folks so they recognize it and they know what we're talking about, um, and not just in movement terms. Often I think we do get caught using our own terminology, um, but a lot of our investments will have to go to the ground to make sure we're actually talking to people in the language that they understand. They have remedies, they understand it, they see it day to day. Uh, We just have to make space to be in conversation with them.
0: Absolutely. You know, we talk at baji's it's like, can you explain this to your grandmother in your native tongue? If you can't translate white supremacist, heteropatriarchal capitalist into your native tongue directly, you got to figure it out. because Exactly. This is what we've got to do. In our last minute, um, before I ask you to let folks know how they can get down with M4DL, really wanted to have a little piece on this global level, right, An international pressure, because that's also always been a part of Black liberation movements all over the world, bringing it to the global stage. And so what impact, you know, does that seem like something that we need to be doing over the next couple of years, Amara, and what impact might that have?
5: We absolutely need to be doing it a lot more um, over the next couple of years. And frankly, a lot of the organizing is happening and a lot of the awareness raising is happening. There are parallel movements and parallel work that's happening whether on the continent in Africa and Central and South America and the Caribbean, where people are coming together because they're recognizing the patterns of uh this these pathological systems that have caused harm. They're recognizing the similarities and they're also recognizing Um, shared power, shared resources, and shared agendas. So what's that, what that's causing is global um, strategic collaborations that are happening, particularly with people of African descent, uh, with Africans and people of African descent around the world. And so we have to tap into that and we have to continue to build on that because none of us is operating in an island and the systems of of oppression are global. They're not just local.
0: Thank you so very much. I'm sorry. I got to cut off before they hurt me. But again, thank you, thank you so much, Amara. Thank you, thank you so much, Mantega. Thank you for coming on, sharing your brilliance with us. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are out of time. I'd like to thank our guests, the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, our board operator for today, Carrie Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online PacificaRadioArchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Stay tuned for KPFK's Morning Mix. This is your guest host, Nana Jumpy.